Gil Alexander, betting dork, Tuesday morning. Good morning to you, or whatever time of day you're listening to this. And it is the debut on this show anyway. My pleasure to welcome for the first time on the betting dork show, pre-game pro, Zach Lawson. How you doing, Zach? What's up? I'm doing very well, and it's a pleasure to be on this show. Um, you know, Gil, I'm a little bit starstruck. You've been killing it in baseball, and uh, <laughs> man, you're, you're like my idol right now, buddy. You are so not starstruck. Stop it. Don't even. <laughs> Don't even. You are in hey, your... in, all, in all seriousness, no, in all seriousness though, uh, I know that you're turning pro here in about a week. Uh, you're going to start selling packages, and I'm, I'm extremely, extremely proud of you because you put in tons of work, and I know that, and I know we haven't talked very much on the on the forums, but... You know, I know you're a sharp dude. You're going to make a lot of people money here at pregame.com, and, you know, that's what it's all about. So congratulations to you, you know, before we before we get into things here. Well, it is kind of you, Zach. I appreciate that. Um, you know, if I could do half as well as um, as much money for folks as you and Dan and Mike and VR and Marco on down, Ken, then, you know, I'm doing something. So just following your lead, my friend. Oh, that's, that's very nice. This is turning into a hug fest real fast. That's right. Let me ask you this. Do I have a gambling problem? If I'm betting on the NBA draft lottery tonight, <laughs> um, absolutely not. If if you're betting on the lottery tonight, you've been talking to Mike Hook too long. Really? What is he doing? Well, I don't know. I mean, he, he's the draft guy. You know, he got all all psyched up for the NFL draft. Me personally, I don't even. I didn't even watch the NFL draft. I probably won't even watch the lottery tonight. Uh, I'll go back uh, tomorrow see what happened. Just like you know, when the NBA draft comes around, I'll go back the next day and see who went where. But I can't sit there for three hours for you know, well, 45, 50 picks. Well, keep in mind now, this is not the this is the, the draft is one thing. The draft is different. And I actually right. I understand when Mike. Well, well, see now you're just seeing what teams get what picks. Yeah, Where's this, the this, fun in that? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Do, is there a problem when there are props being offered and I'm actually looking at them as if I'm going to, <laughs> as if I'm going to make a wager, which as you point out is purely based on math and nothing else, right? Because there's... I, I think, well, the problem starts in the fact you actually know that you can bet on the lottery. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Oh, Zach, the, whatever you're doing right now, there's probably a line set on it somewhere right now. <laughs> Like the, the, the line on uh, you yeah. having cereal this morning, for instance. Um, New Jersey Nets, yeah. 25% chance of winning the lottery. If you're scoring at home, they have the highest chance of winning it. And the Houston Rockets, 0.5%. So check your offshore book. I promise I won't make a bet. All right. Let's talk basketball, though, since we're on the subject here, Zach. Um, I find this to be a curious line for game two of the NBA's Eastern Conference Final between the Celtics and the Magic. Celtics obviously up one game to nothing. The Magic right now, as I look at it, are seven-point favorites, which I find pretty unbelievable. Uh, What are you looking at with that game? Yeah, you know what? First instinct, I think the exact same thing that you think. But, I mean, you know, if we get a line of Orlando at seven coming off a loss at home, this is, I mean, let's be honest. If, if, uh, you know, Orlando goes you know, back to Boston, or if they go to Boston down 0-2, they're in big, big trouble. So this is a must-win game, probably the most important game of the entire series. Um, you know, this is a turning point for both teams. Both teams are going to are gonna be really chomping at the best to get this victory specifically. And I think Orlando uh, at 7 is probably actually pretty fair, and I think that um, the true line might even be closer to 10 uh, because this game is so important for them. It is you know, they will have a sense of urgency knowing that they have to at least split at home, you know? Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly one way uh, to look at it. You know, the, the sort of devil's advocate 
play on that, I guess, is that even when Boston wasn't going on all cylinders this year, they never lost by more than seven in all three of their losses to Orlando. They did have one victory. Um, so, and nothing we've seen certainly of the Celtics so far in the playoffs, thus far in the playoffs, has indicated that they're anything but the 2008 Celtics at this point. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So, so oh, yeah. you know, that's, I guess that's the other way to look at it as well. I was I was shocked. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I you know I I I thought it would be. I thought that the line would be a little less. I thought it would be four or five. Really, I'm I'm pretty surprised by that. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you always got to start with the dog and then work from there. And uh, I mean, I got to be honest. Um, a line comes out like that, and I have a hard time starting at the dog. I pretty much start at Orlando and said I need to find a way uh, to not back Orlando at this crazy line. And you know, I. I think uh, what's best is to stay away because, like you said, Boston really hasn't shown any signs of not being able to, uh, you know, stay competitive for 48 minutes of a basketball game during the during the playoffs. Yeah, and and you know, it's always sort of. I know this didn't work out for the LeBron theory, right? In terms of who's got the best player on the court, but right now, Rajon Rondo just seems so. He seems like three steps ahead of everybody at this point. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely well. His his shot is still terrible, yes. but uh, there's, there's he can that. do the other thing. <laughs> That's right. There is that. Anything with the total, Zach, at 189? Are you thinking anything on that? Uh, no, not really. Um, I think if the Magic are going to play to that seven, it probably will go over. Um, so there there may be some slight correlation there between the uh, total and the side. I think if Orlando covers that seven, it probably goes over. If Boston covers that plus seven, it probably goes under. I like that. Yeah, slight correlation. That's true, but they will let you make yeah. a parlay, despite the slight correlation, if you if you so choose. <laughs> that's um, right. Baseball, because I know that's your thing, my friend. I know you're a big baseball dude. By the way, um, any trips to the Dominican lately for you? Uh, yeah, this last weekend I had a good trip to the Dominican. Um, love to hang out down there. No, I'm totally kidding. I don't actually go down to the Dominican, but uh, I have spent time uh, scouting baseball. Um, minor league stuff, single A stuff, um, freelance stuff. Um, pretty much fill out a scout, make a scouting report for pitchers, uh, send it into the GM. They use it however they want, pay you however they want, type of thing. Oh, very nice. So you you know so, you are you must have a verse knowledge of all kinds of minor league players, then, huh? Uh, I try to probably not as much as Dan Beebe because uh, he actually spent some time with. Uh, the single-A organization of the Diamondbacks. But, yeah, um, I mean, I do actually follow AAA baseball uh, quite closely. I try and watch as much AAA baseball as possible. So, you know, I do know what these guys have, what these guys play like when they get up to the majors. All right, so you're being – hold on. So you're being very nonchalant about this, but I'm curious about this. So what if you were to – I wave, if you were, <laughs> I think you <laughs> I think I'm very impressed. You should go with it. If you were to wave the sort of Zach Lawson magic wand, what would you then like to see yourself doing five years down the road? Oh, five years down the road. That's a tough question. I hated that question in school. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. You know, I don't know. I, I mean, anything with sports, quite frankly. I just love to be around sports. Uh, it's weird because I was a huge basketball player when I was younger, um, but now I've kind of switched my focus to baseball. I love, you know, watching baseball is probably my favorite sport to watch. Uh, it's probably my favorite sport to break down, and I guess it's because I come from that, uh, you know, scouting background where, I mean, I can't watch a game without thinking of, you know, what the guy guy's arm angle is, how much movement he's got on the fastball, blah, 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 you know what I mean? Wow. It, it makes it makes watching baseball fun because most people think 
you know, in between pitches, I've got 10 seconds to do nothing. They're taking too long. Whereas I'm, I'm still thinking about the last pitch the whole time. So it's, baseball's a fast-moving sport for me, actually. I was just cur- <laughs> wow. Well, that's interesting. I was just curious to see if you were going to answer. Yeah, I'd like to be the GM of you know whatever team that you like. I mean, I, I didn't know if that was your sort of play on this. That that's your singular goal to be in a baseball front office. Well, the thing is, is because uh, I've been around some GMs for the minor league clubs, and quite frankly. I think their job is absolutely terrible because they're getting bossed around by the, you know, the big league club the entire time. They really don't have the opportunity to make any decision making any decisions whatsoever. So, you know, unless I was the GM of a major league club, that's really not my style. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, I really don't like answering to anybody. Uh, I'm kind of a stubborn individual. So, uh, that just wouldn't fit well with my personality. Okay. All right. Well, I just want to do a little, uh, you know, expose on Zach Lawson. I figured folks wanted to know. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, baseball today, day games, night games. We've got about five day games, which is always great, and then the rest uh, in the evening. What, as you sort of pour over the board, catches your eye today? Uh, you know what? Early on, um, i got to be honest, early on I was thinking about taking Cincinnati last night when I first saw that line against Milwaukee. Uh, I believe it was a negative 110, maybe a negative 105 at some places. Here's the thing. It's moved up to about negative 132 as I look at it, and I realize this game is probably going to start have started by the time we get this podcast up. Um, but I look at a guy like Manny Parra pitching for Milwaukee. He's pretty much a long reliever. Uh, he's got an absolutely terrible fastball, uh, which is the reason why his whip in the major leagues is, is over 1.5, if my memory serves me correctly. But terrible fastball, a lot of break on his curveball, but he can never hit the zone with it. You know, Homer Bailey's a kid that was extremely highly touted as a youngster. Um, he's He's been extremely inconsistent, kind of hittable. Uh, he's kind of a lengthy kid, a lot of moving parts there. He hasn't been able to gain any sort of consistency. But with how hot Cincinnati's been and uh, how little faith I have in Manny Parra, I figured Cincinnati at a, at a 110 or so, I figured that was a great spot to start the day with a winner. Uh, at 132, it kind of – Kind of scared me off a little bit. I know I'm getting it. If we took it at 132, we'd be getting it at the back end or at the ceiling of the value point, probably. So, um, what about you, Gil? You tell me what you're looking at. Um, well, first of all, with that particular play, I actually had with, with without this the great detail that you just described. I had the same sort of general thought process, and when I first saw it, I immediately thought Reds, especially after I was on the Brewers last night and saw the. Brewer bullpen implode once again. Um, yeah, me too. Um, but, yeah, I sort of agree with you. At minus 130, yeah, you know, Homer Bailey is not Cy Young either, and that oh, Brewer's yeah. offense is always capable. So I'm not sure minus 130. I don't, I don't know that there's any value quite left in that line. But in terms of my first reaction, it was exactly what yours was. The two games that I'm on, and I have this in my thread today, the two games that I ended up with, and it sort of was a winnowing down process that started with four and then ended up at two. Um, the first one is sort of a, a mimic of what I did yesterday. I backed Dice K against the Yankees. And I could get into sabermetric detail with you, but it justified or confirmed for me my initial notion that in any Red Sox-Yankees game, there should never be a line of plus 175 or plus 180 or whatever it was that it, you know, it was yesterday. Like That to me is such, I'll use the gambling term, recentism. People are so into recent play 
that immediately they sort of lose their heads about, oh, this is the Red Sox and the Yankees after all. How in the heck is one team at plus 175 or plus 180? Now, it didn't work out. John Papelbon blew his first save of the year, and so we snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. But I had Dice K last night at plus 180, and I got Beckett, despite how terrible Beckett's been, certainly through conventional stats. I got him at plus 175 last night. And again, sabermetrically, not quite as big a mismatch as one would think. But in essence, it's the Red Sox and the Yankees, plus 175. I mean, this is, it's almost, to be honest with you, Zach, it's almost the most non-analytical couple of plays of my season. It's sort of just a, this is a crazy line, and if I have some sabermetric backup on it, I'm doing it. And so that's, that's my first play of the day. See, the issue I have there is uh, I completely agree. People see the way the Yankees have played the Red Sox you know, this year. But the thing for me is, is it's gone back as far as last year. Also, I believe the Yankees have won something like 14 of the last 18 against Boston. Um, on the plus side, though, like you said, I think that line was 175 last night, maybe even 180 at some places. It did drop to 165, so that's working in your favor. question I have for you is um, – you know, would you ever think about taking the taking the run line, the plus one and a half for Boston? You'd probably have to lay one twenty or so, so you'd be losing eighty five cents for an extra run. How does that sound? Would I ever consider it? Absolutely. But this is one of those where I really do think the maximum value is packed into the win. In other words, I think even with getting that extra run, yes, makes the bet that much easier to win. But in terms of just bang for your buck, in terms of where is really the value situated, this line is so high, Zach. I mean, so high. We're not talking about a plus 140 here. That there's just, to me, the value is in the money line. So yes, I, I do consider the run line. But in this case, I actually think the money line is where, is where the, the punch is packed. You're right, by the way, your stat is actually 14 of 17. It's actually better than you noted. The Yankees have won 14 out of the last 17 against the Red Sox. Um, I noted it all in my write-up where it's like, you know, they have tons of streaks going against the Red Sox. But again, last night, you look at the ball game, and they could have well, just yeah. as easily lost. I mean, you know, certainly. But but yes, they do have a domination um, going these days against the Red Sox. And Beckett has not been good. I mean, there's no way to sugarcoat that. Though, again, I would say it's not quite as bad as the conventional numbers indicate. My other pick of the day is actually an early game in Toronto where I'm backing Sean Markham against a very good Carl Pavano and the Twins. Um, you know, I I got to be honest. I looked at that line and I said, I got to find a way to back Carl Pavano. And, you know, looking at what Sean Markham has done this year, there's just no way I could back the Twins. Uh, I didn't bring myself to back Toronto, but I can definitely I can definitely respect that play. Um, you know, early on, it's a, a small home favorite. I know a lot of us were on Toronto yesterday, uh, and Dana Evelyn absolutely made an egg. But, uh um, yeah, Carl Pavano, fantastic pitcher, like you said. Thing is, is he's going to be pitching to contact, and these Toronto bats are, are semi-warm right now. Um, you know, Pavano is, is not a guy that's going to go out there and get 12 Ks on a daily basis. Uh, you are going to be able to hit him, and Toronto's bats have been semi-decent lately. So, yeah, if Markham can continue to pitch well, I like that play. And, and the reason I did end up pulling the trigger on Toronto is his dominance over lefties. I mean, he just destroys lefties, and the Twins lineup is, if nothing else, a series of power lefty bats, and um, absolutely, and you know, from Span to not Span being the power, but Span, Maurer, Morneau, Kubel, Tomey, 
all of them lefties. You know what's weird in looking at that? Because I looked at that Eveland matchup versus Minnesota yesterday, and and Eveland is a lefty, and he was only getting hit at about a 170 clip against lefties against left-handed batters. But the left-handed batters for the Twins bat like 280 versus lefties, is totally, totally not what you'd expect. So it's kind of weird. I think the Twins lefties actually hit better against lefties. Uh, than they do righties, which is definitely not something you normally see. And if you can get a guy like Sean Markham who can pitch, you know, decently to lefties as a right-handed pitcher, uh, yeah, that's that's gold right there. Yeah, but you you do. I mean, again, though, Zach, that is a good point. Last year, because that's a that's a very valuable thing to know. The Twins aren't your average left-handed bats either. So I don't. Yeah, I, d- I definitely don't want to give that impression either. Because last year, if I'm not mistaken, their splits in terms of hitting lefties and righties was pretty much dead even. Which is pretty, is right? yeah, pretty phenomenal. So the, they're not your average group of left-handed, but but that's why yeah, I, no. that's why I went Markham. You you said something in in when you were talking there about the Twins and the um and the Blue Jays today, which I think is fascinating just from a handicapping perspective, and I think is pretty insightful. You used the phrase, "I looked for every reason to back um, uh, Pavano, but I couldn't find one." It's funny. That's such a, to me, it's such a, um, it doesn't happen every day like that for me. But for instance, last night, that was sort of my thought process with Johan Santana and the New York Mets. And I looked for a reason to back Johan Santana, and I simply could not in good conscience do so based on the research. And I just think that that's an interesting way to go about things, you know, whether it's a small, small favorite or from the dog perspective that the numbers don't lie. You can't fight the facts sometime. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and you know, you're more of a numbers guy than I am. Uh, I'm kind of, I describe myself as a visual baseball handicapper. I, I simply watch as much baseball as I can and go from there. I like to see exactly how a guy's pitching, see what kind of guys he excels against. But you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, if the stats don't back it up, you know, uh, you can't put your money on it. And, and I think, you know, you bring up Johan, that's a great point. I mean, we know uh, from his his past work in the major leagues how good the guy can be, but looking at what he's done this year, you know, can we trust him? I, I don't know. Probably not, like you said. Yeah, and for me, it was just as much just as much Johan as it is on the other side. It's sort of like, yeah, if you look, Johan's just he's just there's something about I don't think his fastball is there this year, Zach. I really don't. Like, I mean, if I, <laughs> well, by the way, when you were saying uh, you're a little more analytical, what if I had responded by saying I haven't watched a single pitch of baseball all year? <laughs> could, you, could you imagine? But, but yeah, obviously I'm joking about that. But if when watching Johan this year, I honestly don't think that his fastball is quite there anymore. And oh, no, I was just gonna say, you know what's funny is. You could have not watched Johan, and uh, and you would know that his fastball isn't there this year. And I'll tell you why. You look at his splits. He's, I believe, he's getting hit at about a 260 clip from lefties against him, and that tells me right away that his fastball is not there because usually lefties are they they're not going to hit Johan at all, and usually it's the righties that'll hit him because the righties can see his fastball, and usually he's going to have to get the lefties out with a changeup. But if his fastball is not there, then lefties will hit him. And so the fact that he's given up a 260 clip to lefties pretty much tells me his fastball is not there. His changeup has been decent, you know, and that's why the righties are, are hitting about 250 and not a little bit higher. Um, but, yeah, the fastball, like you said, 
uh, definitely not there for our for our big stud Johan. Well, let me let me ask you a question since you're you are a guy who just follows baseball completely in depth, and I'm curious your take also as a handicapper on this. We all sort of look at all kinds of things um, when handicapping baseball. One of the um, one of the things is this notion of day night splits. As a seasoned observer of baseball, do you buy into that with a pitcher? And the reason I, I thought of that is because Santana, for instance, does very well during the day of late, just very pedestrian at night. And there's a lot of pitchers that sort of have that split. Do you read into that at all? Absolutely. And uh, I think there's a reason that Santana's like that, and it's because of his changeup. Uh, He's got tons and tons of movement on that changeup, and I compare him to a guy like uh, Fausto Car- Carmona. He's another guy who's fantastic during the day, and it's because he throws a sinker with tons of downward action on it. So I, I feel like these guys have tons of sink on their pitches. You know, Santana doesn't have tons of sink on his fastball, but he throws a changeup a whole lot more than most. So I feel like it's these guys that have the downward sink. That's extremely tough to see in the glare of uh, everyday sunlight, whereas from what I've heard, uh, playing under the lights, you can see the seams a lot better. Um, side-to-side movement is about the same day to night, but uh, up-and-down movement is, is really hard to pick up during the day as compared to under the lights where you can see which way the seams are turning and see which way the ball is going to break. And then I'm sure if you add ballparks at a certain time of day that have shadows playing, it gets even more difficult, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this sort of conjures up, and forgive me, you and I, we didn't like talk about certain things we are going to talk about before the show, but I'm sort of thinking out loud now. This is interesting to me, though. Okay, so day-night you buy into. Here's a question for you then, Zach. What is a, what is a commonly used sort of baseball parameter that when people cite in handicapping or in predicting the outcome of a ball game, you're like, that stat means nothing. Like, or that thing means like, like something you just don't buy into and that you think is just sort of, you know, a red herring, if you will. Well, you know, that, I mean, that's, that is a tough question. Um, I would go back to the same thing that people cite when betting on sports, uh, you know, other than baseball as well, is, you know, you tell me, uh, that uh, let's say the Marlins are you know 10 and 0 coming off a series starting loss at home this year blah blah, blah. that I mean that means absolutely nothing like you said right, right. that's one of those things where uh, baseball's uh, a unique sport because you know there's five different starting pitchers on the mound you know on five different days and uh, even the bullpen you know you're not going to see the same guys out of the bullpen every single day. And the lineup, you know, there's usually going to be one different guy in the lineup every single day. So the teams are never the same. And I do, I do fully respect, you know, betting on a hot streak because these baseball teams do get hot. But don't tell me that, uh, you know, they've, they've won six straight in this, you know, certain situation. So we're going to bet on them again here when they're sending a guy to the mound that has an ERA of, you know, 6.5 or whatever. Right. The, the, the trend, yeah, trends in general are often bunk. Yeah, I w- I not w- my style. I would agree with that. For me, I think it would be, for you know, I'm a, as you say, I'm a numbers guy, so numbers to me, there's always some interest in every single number, but the one I think to me that oftentimes gets overplayed, well, for me, the biggest nonsense number in the world is win-losses for pitchers. I'll oh, yeah. defend that to the grave. But 
the other one for sort of handicapping purposes that I hear some folks throw out a lot is when a single batter has a great or really poor average against a certain pitcher, and they sort of cite that as like a huge reason for making a play, I oftentimes think that gets overplayed, unless it's like, you know, all lefties or all righties. Like It doesn't mean as much to me that one batter on a certain team is batting, you know, 183 against a certain pitcher or whatever, but... Yeah, uh, oh, I absolutely agree, and I think that sometimes we see people say, "Well, uh, you know, the Brewers. Let's say the Brewers hit 340 against Bailey in his career. That's not true. I'm making it up. But um, and then you go and look back, and you find out that Bailey's only faced him once, or something like or, that, or that he's faced him not since 2007. Right. Yeah. Ex- exactly. So and no, yeah, those uh, those numbers are definitely relative, and you know. All right. What Definitely el- take some more research. What um anything else today that uh, you know pouring up and down that uh, caught your eye? Man, uh, I think that Granky Millwood matchup is going to be fun. Uh, Millwood's been pitching absolutely fantastic. Uh, had a little bit of a hiccup against Seattle his last start, but you know he his, historically he's always pitched poorly against Seattle. Uh, Granky. Uh, started the year not quite himself, but he is coming back. And uh, if he can keep his pitch count down, that's his, that's his issue right now. Is he's not able to go deep into games because he's all over the place. He's walking people. His pitch count gets extremely high by the sixth or seventh inning. And you know Kansas City needs him to go eighth strong. If they could go Granky straight to uh, Soria, that's that's a one-two punch right there, and they'd be tough to beat. But um, if Cranky's only going to go six or seven, you got to deal with that Royals pen, and that's never fun. But Millwood at a plus money, a plus money line at home for the Orioles. You know, I know it's Cranky. I know he was a Cy Young, but uh, that kind of looks nice. Well, it's funny you say that, Zach. And if nothing else, you and I think alike uh, on today's board because I, I mentioned to you that I ended up with two plays, but I had I had winnowed it down to four initially. And sure enough, the other two were was the Mets, uh, Johan Santana against the Braves that I just mentioned, and the other one was this Royals Orioles game. And of course, when you um, you know look at someone like Granky at that affordable price, your eyes go to him, and you're like, "All right, well, let's think about this." And you know, I what you said about Granky probably could be applied to any Royal starter, which is if you could just get their starter to go, you know, seven and two thirds yeah. <laughs> and get Sori in there, that'd be golden. Unfortunately it's the Royals, and in the end I just couldn't I couldn't play that game. Same reason I couldn't play it last night when it was too much um lesser pitcher, pitchers than the ones that are uh, starting tonight. It's just I just really like of all the games, is this the one that I'm gonna actually put money behind? I can't rely on either of these two teams. Well, you know what's funny is um, I talked about this on the Today in Sports Betting podcast, actually, but I think Greinke is falling into a hole that uh, a guy like Ubaldo falls into with his team. I think when Greinke's on the mound, the bats just don't come out. Um, I, you know, I think there's a bit of complacency. There, these guys in the dugout are saying, well, we got our stud on the mound. Uh, we can take it easy today. And if you look at his numbers this year, um, I think only one time has his team given him more than four runs. So, you know, they're going out there and they're giving him one or two runs every time out, and they're asking him to, you know, carry the world on his shoulders. And quite frankly, even a guy as good as Zach Greinke, uh, you know, you can't deal with the stress of always being tied one-to-one or always being tied zero-to-zero. Trust me, pitchers pitch is better when they have a 3 nothing lead, 4 nothing lead. So, and he simply, I mean, I don't think he's seen a lead greater than two runs all season long. In fact, I'd almost guarantee that he hasn't. So uh, that's a lot of pressure on a young kid like Greinke. I mean, he is still a young kid. So, um, you know, Kansas City's got to get the guy some runs. 
Jason Stark of ESPN, and I'm going to totally botch this stat right now, Zach, so forgive me, but Jason Stark about uh, two or three weeks ago put out a stat about Grinky, and he said that he had, you know, it was some parameter of like his last 25 starts heading back into last season or some, or some ridiculous amount of games where his ERA was like barely over two. And he gave the Royals actual win-loss record in games that Greinke had started. And they had like a pretty significant losing record with Greinke pitching that way. And it's startling to see. You know, I mean, if a guy's yeah. given you that kind of output consistently and you can't even get to 500, in fact, you weren't even close to 500, that says it all. It's amazing. Yeah, it, I mean, it's weird the way that uh, the way that players think. I think, you know, when, there's, when they know that they have their fifth, uh, the fifth guy in the rotation on the mound, they go out there thinking that it's going to be a run fest, and they go out there looking to score runs, whereas when they have their ace on the mound, they go out there expecting to grind it out. And obviously it shouldn't be that way. Obviously you should be looking to score as many runs as humanly possible on every single night, but... Uh, I mean, quite frankly, a lot of the Major League Baseball players aren't thinking that way. They'll take their first chance, you know, they can to, to take a day off, whether it's mentally or physically. So, you know, a lot of them might be out there daydreaming while their ace is on the mound. Okay, so, so let me, so this brings up something else then, which is every week I do, I do a sabermetric show, but I also do a show where I talk about a lot of totals stats for a lot of totals players, and I talk about what umpires um, ump in terms of their pension for umping over, over games when they're behind the plate or under. But one of the things I talk about is the run-supported, the top run-supported pitchers in the American League and the National League. And so what I'm getting for you is, because I always preface it, Zach, and I'll be completely honest, I always preface it by saying run-support is a product of good fortune. But what I'm hearing from you is that it's not quite that simple. So, I mean, I guess what, what I'm saying is, in your opinion then, what percentage is run-support just plain blind, you know, good or bad luck, and what percentage is sort of what you're talking about, if I'm understanding it correctly, which is, no, there's actually a psychological thing happening, you know, based on the quality of pitcher who's on the mound. You know what, I, that's tough, and I think it depends on the team. Uh, because if you look at a guy like uh, Derek Lowe, he started the year out absolutely terrible, but he got the most run support of anyone in the major leagues, and I think he started 3-0 and or 4-0, and even though he had an ERA of around 5. So, like you said, that's, that's straight-up good fortune. Um, but you look at a guy like Granke, who, uh, you know, has he been unlucky for an entire year straight? Um, you know, that's hard to say. I'd, I'd rather say that, uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's the actual reason, but I'd rather say that the guys lose focus when their aces on the mound. And I think we're seeing the same thing with Ubaldo. So I think it's a team-by-team -team thing, and I don't know if it's a, uh, you know, a coaching thing where, where uh, the manager isn't getting his guys ready to play, or whether, you know, I mean, you look at the Braves. They've got a manager who's been in the big leagues for 150 years, I think it is. And uh, and he's the guy who's getting his his bats ready when the ace is on the mound. Whereas you know a team like the Royals, who's a losing team year in and year out, their team isn't ready to play when their when their ace is on the mound. So um, you know that could have something to do with it. But that's a that's a tough question, and it very well could just be luck. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely something to it because. Like you said in the Derek Lowe case, it may even have extended beyond a year now for Derek Lowe in terms of him just getting great run support. Like I just, don't, I think it was even. In, I may be wrong about this, but I think it was even before 2009 that he was getting real fortunate, and maybe into the beginning of this season. But then there are pitchers. Famously, I always bring up Matt Kane of the uh, Giants. Matt Kane oh, had yeah. had a couple years where he could not buy 
a run of support, and now all of a sudden last year they're like scoring gobs for him. And, it, and, and it's a season-long thing, so it makes you wonder. It's just sort of like, well, I don't know. It can't be that random, you know? I mean, it is good fortune in the end, but, and, and also, if, if, I know I'm rambling, but the other thing is sometimes you're just the Diamondbacks and sometimes you're just the Royals. So, you know, other, yeah. <laughs> other times it's just the quality of your offense, I guess, overall. Anyway, all, all interesting. So did, did I finally get a play out of you? Did I get a lean or something out of you in all this? I can't remember. Uh <laughs> Uh, probably not. Uh, I do like that Baltimore side. Um, you know, like, like you said, uh, you know, anytime we can, we can, uh, move away from Granky at a session, even line. Cause I know that, you know, it's kind of like a tractor beam and we see Granky at a, at a wall. you know, we kind of look at that first and foremost, but you know, Baltimore at home, Kevin Millen has pitched great this year. Uh, you know, if I had to give out a lean here on the betting dork show, I'd give out the Baltimore Orioles. All right. Gun to head, Baltimore Orioles. I think what's a, what's a interesting is what we also didn't mention, Zach, is that none of us are viewing Felix Hernandez quite in the same way these days that we might have a month ago. That's sort of interesting, I guess. Ooh, I am. I am. I like Felix. Uh, I think he pitched great his last time out, actually. I think uh, seven innings, one earned run. Um you know, he's, he's a special case because he went through a couple of bad starts, uh, and I feel like because he went through a couple of bad starts, like you said, people aren't viewing him the same way, but he was dealing with some back stiffness issues, um, and, and from what I've heard, he's completely healthy now. So, uh, you know, my estimation is we're going to see him go seven innings of one-run ball again. Um, you know, I have, I have nothing that would tell me that he would pitch uh, any different because those two starts, he got pulled from one of the starts, actually, because he couldn't deal with the back stiffness or the back pain or whatever. Uh, so he actually asked to come out of one of those starts. And then the start after that was equally poor because of his back. Um, apparently, he's A-OK now. So uh, maybe there's some value on Felix now that uh, people still look at him as a guy who's struggling, uh, even though, quite frankly, he's physically not struggling anymore. So why should we expect him to be mechanically struggling with uh, you know, his fastball like he was earlier. By what I meant to say by we're not looking at Felix at all is oh we are totally looking at Felix <laughs> is what is what I meant to say. <laughs> um, exactly. He, he uh he um yeah he's had he has pronounced himself by the way completely healthy. He has said that I'm fine now. I've got it all back together. Uh-huh. The reason I stayed off is simply for whatever reason and I and this applies only to Giants and A's because I get to see obviously an inordinate amount of those two teams since I live out here. I just have this notion that every time I see Felix playing the A's, they get to him to a certain degree. It's sort of like someone was asking me about the Giants and Padres, and I'm like, I'll never take a side in that series. Like, those two teams are always playing two-to-one games in my mind's eye without checking any Mm -hmm. stats. You know, and so that was my sort of knee-jerk to Felix. Just, I... Listen, I that guy had 17 or 18 quality starts in a row before those two outings you just referred to. So there's no doubt he'll be back for sure. Yeah, I think uh, I was watching an A's um, an A's Mariners game earlier this year, and I don't remember the exact stat, but over the last like three or four years, it was something in between 60 and 65 percent of the of the games between the Mariners and the A's end in one run games, which. Yeah, uh, I mean, if if you're betting on games that are coming down to the ninth inning, um, 
you know, anything can happen at that point. Yeah. And at that point, it has nothing to do with the starting pitching, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, and at that point, it's sort of like, why are you betting it, you know? It's sort of like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, we're not here for action, we're here to, to make some, some cash. Well, Zach, exactly. I hope I hope this wasn't uh, I hope this wasn't too painful for you. I hope I didn't uh, fluster you with some off the cuff questions there. I appreciate it. No, absolutely not, man. It was a great time. Uh, love talking sports and uh, love the laid back feel of the show, man. <laughs> I appreciate it. I always worry when someone says that to me because it's like, damn, Gil, could you prepare, could you prepare something for God's sakes? <laughs> no, hey, hey, man, that's what it should be like. Uh, you know, people love talking sports. People love listening to people talk sports. That's what it's all about. I love it, dude. It's just a conversation. The uh, record button just happens to be on. That's how I look at it. That's right. Cool. Zach Lawson, everybody, pregame pro. And um, what time of day do you sort of release your plays, just um, out of curiosity? Um, right right about now. I'm, a little, I'm running a little bit late today, okay. but they'll be up soon. <laughs> All right. Let me let you go because there's some day games. Zach Lawson, thanks so much for being on the show. Gil Alexander, betting dork tomorrow, Sabermetrics dork cast. Dorkapalooza with base winner. We'll get into some numbers. See you then. It's-